This is the Successful Farming Weeds Playbook Podcast. I'm your host, Lori Boyer. Today's program is sponsored by Anthem and Authority Brand Herbicides from FMC. Visit ag.fmc.com. Control the toughest weeds with overlapping residuals. Lock in the longest lasting control for your soybean fields. A pre-emergence application of an Authority brand herbicide plus a post-application of Anthem Max herbicide establishes the overlapping residual control key to safeguarding your soybean seasons. This pairing is a heavy-duty economical strategy against Palmer Amaranth, Waterhemp, Kosha, and more. Visit your FMC retailer or lockin.ag.fmc.com today. Always read and follow all label directions. My guest today is Professor of Weed Science with the University of Illinois, Aaron Hager. And our topic is pigweeds and pigweed issues. Aaron, my first question to you, what are pigweeds? Pigweeds are uh, actually a group of several different species that farmers deal with here in the Midwest, exhibit a summer annual life cycle. So in other words, they germinate from seeds in the spring of the year. And then typically by several weeks before harvest, they will actually be producing the seed. And it's been interesting really to watch pigweed in general, at least here for me in Illinois over the 30 years that I've been here, because when I started here at Illinois 30 years ago, we were actually dealing with pigweed species at that time that we typically don't deal much with these days. So there's actually been you know a pretty significant shift, if I could use that term, away from our historically more common pigweeds here, which again, 30 years ago, most of which included smooth pigweed, red root pigweed, to now really our driver species is a different pigweed species. And of course, for us, it's water hemp. Now for folks farther to the West, that may include things like Palmer amaranth in addition to water hemp. So you know, pigweeds, again, they're the summer annual species, but there are several different species. But again, across the landscape of much of the Midwest over the last, oh, say, 25 years, there's been a very sizable change in the composition of the pigweed species that many farmers encounter in their fields. Aaron, I would like to learn more about that composition change that you're talking about in pigweed species. We dealt with historically here, you know, and I'm more comfortable obviously talking about our history here in Illinois, but Things like the smooth pigweed and the red root pigweed, which we call that those are monoecious pigweeds. And what does that mean? Well, both male and female flowers are on the same plant. So red root pigweed is monoecious, smooth pigweed is monoecious. But we have again experienced this change in our species composition in the fields to now where the vast majority of the acres here in Illinois are not infested with the two monoecious pigweed species, but rather, generally just speaking, one dioecious species. Now, the dioecious ones, of course, would be the water hemp and the palmer amaranth. And the word dioecious means that now the male flowers and the female flowers are on separate plants, so they're not on the same plant. And so, obviously, when you have that kind of biology, to successfully have seed production, you have to have cross-pollination. So these these water hemp plants, these palmer amaranth plants are obligate outcrossing species. And when you look at genetic diversity of species, when you have something that has that type of biology, you see a lot of genetic diversity or at least more genetic diversity in the dioecious species relative to the monoecious species. Is there certain times of the year that it's more prevalent than others? Not really. One thing that is a little bit different, I think, of, of the dioecious species, um, 
we would generally think of things like red root pigweed and smooth pigweed to have a more discreet emergence timing in the spring of the year. But for things like water hemp, palmer, amaranth, that emergence characteristic is what we would now refer to as much more continuous. And the best example I can give, I jokingly tell folks here, that if you've identified a field of water hemp that had only one emergence event the entire growing season, you've misidentified it because that's not the biology of water hemp nor palmer amaranth. So we typically begin to see emergence of water hemp here, you know, probably around mid to late April in many years. And if conditions are right, you can find seedling water hemp plants emerging, you know, well into the month of August. Aaron, how does the producer identify pigweed? Most all of the pigweed species that are common throughout the Midwest, one identification characteristic that's consistent is that if you look at the very tip of the leaf, of a true leaf, for virtually all the pigweed species, there's a tiny little notch at the tip of that true leaf. And again, that holds true for most of the species. Now, what we try to really emphasize to folks is that Probably the most important thing is to be able to differentiate the monoecious species from the dioecious species. The monoecious species, both redroot and pigweed and smooth pigweed, are typically covered with small hairs on the stem and leaf surface. So if you would rub your forefinger and thumb against that leaf surface or that stem, it'll feel a little bit rough to the touch. The water hemp and the palm amaranth virtually have no hairs on the stem and no hairs on the leaf surface. So they're going to feel very, very smooth to the touch. So once you can separate between the monoecious and the dioecious pigweeds, now it becomes very, very important to be able to differentiate between palmer amaranth and water hemp, with the primary reason that palmer tends to be a much more competitive species and has a much faster growth rate than does water hemp. And what that means from a practical standpoint, you know, water hemp, you literally could see water hemp plants putting on inches of growth per day. And so if you're trying to schedule a field for a post-emergence application and you have predominantly palmer amaranth, it's not like you have a big window to try to make that application before those weeds actually get too big to be effectively controlled. How is pigweed spread, Aaron? These are spread virtually entirely by seed. The other characteristic of these dioecious pigweeds, the females of the dioecious pigweeds, is that they can produce a tremendous amount of seed. You know, it's actually been published in the literature that a female water hemp plant in a non-competitive environment can produce millions of seeds per female. Now, in a competitive environment, if that same female or female water hemp plants or palmer were growing in competition with soybean, corn, grain, sorghum, etc., they're never going to make that number of seed, but it's not unusual for females to make several hundred thousand seeds per female plant. And so there's few other of the summer annual weed species that farmers have to contend with that have that seed producing capacity. It's a tremendous amount of seed. They're very small. We don't have enough time in the day to really list all the different ways that these seeds can move around. Another joke I make, and I probably shouldn't do this, but I tell people if they ask, you know, how many different ways can these seeds move? I said, well, it's going to take a while to develop that list. It'd be a much more efficient use of time to simply come up with a list of ways the seeds can't move because there's nothing on that list. You know, these seeds can move in ways that you and I can't even think of right now. And a prime example would be Dr. Kevin Bradley at the University of Missouri several years ago published some work. They looked at migratory waterfowl and migratory waterfowl can ingest the seeds 
obviously by migration, they're moving, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of miles. And those seeds are being transported by either biotic or even abiotic methods. And quite honestly, one of the best weed seed spreaders that we have is a combine. They're tremendous at spreading seed around. It has absolutely no trouble passing through the combine. You know, we've got photographs of weeds the following spring that obviously came through the back end of that combine, and you couldn't really seed it any thicker than that. But one of the reasons why we make the claim that these dioecious pigweeds are very well suited to modern farming practices, if you think of how people farm today relative to 40, 50 years ago, on average, you know, farmers are farming more acres across a larger geography. So that means they're moving equipment farther today than what they might have when I was a youngster growing up in a small town in West Central Illinois. As I recall, our family had about 1,500 acres, and that was enough for three families. And distance from the farthest fields or the fields farthest apart was probably not much more than about three to four miles. Obviously, with larger farms today, you have combines and equipment that are traveling you know, across county lines, across state lines. And so if you have seed of a water hemp, seed of a palmer, from your previous field, and now all of a sudden the next one that you're going to is eight, nine, ten miles away. Well, guess what's going to happen? You're literally going to be transporting that seed. And as we said earlier, you know, water hemp is indigenous to Illinois, but it was really most prevalent in the southern part of the state until it started its progressively movement to the north. And, and I've watched this for 25 years as you would go farther north in the state. You really didn't encounter fields that were completely overrun with water hemp in the in, you know, years ago in the early stages of, of this movement. What was very common would be to see a field where you would see a few scattered plants along either the headlands of the field or along one edge of the field. Now, why was that? Well, you go back and you find where the entry is into that field, and that's where that machine entered that field and started that next operation, whether it was harvest, whether it was tillage. That's where those seeds initially were deposited. Well. If you did allow a few seeds in those fields or plants to make seed over the years, you could progressively now start to see those populations spread farther across the field. That brings up the question for me, Aaron, how big does pigweed get? Well, a lot of that's going to depend on the environmental conditions, and some of it is going to be determined in what type of setting or competitive environment those plants are growing. For example, corn plants will grow, what, eight seven, eight, nine feet tall, and we can find water hemp plants in Palmer, for that matter, that has no trouble whatsoever growing taller than the tassels on top of that corn plant. Now, if you were to take that same plant, but instead of growing in a corn crop that year, it's say, for example, was growing in a soybean crop, it'll probably get about two feet taller than the soybean and it'll stop. It doesn't really need to get that much taller. When it stops that growth, what that typically means is that less of its food and energy goes into growth and more goes into seed production. They're very adaptable, literally to most all the annual crops that we produce across the Midwest. Aaron, my next question, now that you've explained that, does pigweed actually choke out crops or what exactly does it do to the crops? That'll really be dependent upon if we're talking about something like palmer or water hemp. And we did work with water hemp, oh golly, you know, 25 years ago, looking to try to determine how competitive it could be with soybean, for example. And for three years, we had our research plots in an area on our farm that was so dense in water hemp that literally by probably three or four weeks after the beans had come up, and these were 30-inch row beans, that you really couldn't see the ground. 
I mean, that's how thick that was. And if I recall correctly, we would let that interference and that competition last virtually the entire growing season. I think we reduced the soybean yield by, I think it was by 42 to 43%. So typically for water hemp and an infestation that we commonly see across the Midwest, we're never going to get to that level because, you know, soybean can be competitive with the weeds also. But if you were to take a similar density of Palmer Amaran, it could result in close to 100% yield loss. It's much, much more competitive than what water hemp is. And that's why, you know, folks who encountered water or I'm sorry, Palmer Amaranth in areas of the Mid-South and the Southeast in the last 20 to 25 years, it was more or less a very rude awakening for a lot of folks in that, you know, well, we're not really concerned about it. Somebody's going to come up with a solution for this. It's not as bad as universities are telling us. There's a lot of people that didn't harvest a crop in the early years of Palmer becoming established. Control the toughest weeds with overlapping residuals. Lock in the longest lasting control for your soybean fields. A pre-emergence application of an authority brand herbicide plus a post-application of Anthem Max herbicide establishes the overlapping residual control key to safeguarding your soybean seasons. This pairing is a heavy-duty economical strategy against Palmer Amaranth, Waterhemp, Kosha, and more. Visit your FMC retailer or lockin.ag.fmc.com today. Always read and follow all label directions. Is there a specific climate that pigweed thrives in, Aaron? Really, we've been able to see, you know, the expanse of these dioecious pigweeds across virtually every crop-growing environment. About two or three years ago, I believe it was discovered even in Manitoba and Canada, Palmer Amaranth, and they believe it had moved in seed, contaminated livestock seed into Canada. I haven't been able to track it to see if it's become well-established, but I do know, speaking with the weed science in North Dakota, that it has both Palmer and water hemp are becoming fairly well-established in North Dakota even. Aaron, you have mentioned a few states during our conversation here today, but are there some states more than others that experience greater infestations of pigweed? Well, typically we see more issues with Palmer amaranth either in the western U.S., the mid-south, and the southeastern U.S. Palmer as a species actually evolved in the Sonoran Desert, in the desert southwest, so it really thrives in these hotter, drier climates. It prefers sandier, or coarser textured soil. We actually had a population that we worked on ballpark to kind of give your listeners an idea. It was about 30 miles straight west of Chicago several years ago on a fairly coarse textured soil. First year that we had worked on that field, it was just the the monster plant that we had seen photographs from in Georgia and Arkansas. You know, untreated plants by about three weeks, you'd lost your crop. You know, this thing was growing seven, eight feet tall. It was either the next year or the third year we were on that site. We had a tremendous amount, a very wet spring. And I mean, by wet, I'm talking about there were, you know, standing puddles of water on a sand field. That's how much moisture that we had received that spring. And that year, the Palmer Amaranth never got much more than about four feet tall. And I thought, boy, that sure seems odd. Well, I contacted the weed scientist at Purdue because I knew they had a population just literally you know, probably within 100 miles east of where ours was. And I said, how's your Palmer look? And they said, that's about four feet tall. And I said, you've been pretty wet this spring. Yeah. So ironically, Palmer probably prefers more of a drier growth, you know, during the season. Water hemp's actually evolved in the Midwest. So it's always been here in the Midwest. For us in Illinois, you know, listening to stories that my mentor, Dr. Lloyd Wax, would tell back in the you know, late 60s and 70s, when he would go in about the southern third, southern quarter of Illinois, 
the only pigweed he would find there was water hemp. But a lot of people didn't recognize the differences between, you know, how to identify something like water hemp from, you know, the, as we mentioned earlier, the Monisha species, the red root uh, smooth pigweed, because, you know, all of them have a red root when they're small. And so there's been a lot of misidentification of the pigweeds down through the decades. But, you know, in the last 25 years, it's been fascinating to watch this species that was in a relatively confined, and I don't mean that it couldn't move, obviously, area of the state of Illinois to now encompassing, you know, it's our driver pigweed species now. You know, 25 years from either, if you think about that from an evolutionary standpoint, from a landscape ecology standpoint, I mean, 25 years is literally the blink of an eye. And so these species, both water hemp and palmer, have figured out how to really adapt to how we're farming today. And, you know, we talk a lot about herbicide resistance issues in these species, and those are very, very important issues to look at, to discuss, and try to understand. But even apart from issues around herbicide resistance, you know, both palmer and water hemp are just very well suited to modern farming practices. What are some suggestions you have for farmers to combat or mitigate it? It's been interesting, again, you know, from a different aspect to look at, you know, we focused a lot down through the years on trying to understand the biology of water hemp to try to come up with management strategies for farmers to use to try to manage this. But the evolution of resistance in the species has been unlike anything I've ever seen before. A colleague of mine, we first identified, golly, this would have been back in the mid-90s, first population of water hemp that was resistant to herbicides from two different classes. We thought we were on top of the world. I mean, my gosh, nobody had ever published on that before. Well, that's pretty much old news now. I mean, we've got a population here close to our campus that we've worked on for several years, and that population is now resistant to herbicides from six different classes. So now, Aaron, what would you say is the biggest challenge when it comes to pigweed issues? Our greatest challenge is trying to convince folks that, look, We're going to continue to use herbicides virtually on every acre of corn, every acre of soybean that we have here in the state. But we really have to now get very serious about trying to come up with what else, in addition to herbicides, are we going to be needing to use, willing to use, to try to ensure that by the end of the growing season, there's no seed. Because really, if there's no seed that's produced at the end of the growing season, there's no change in the frequency of any of these resistance alleles or these resistance mechanisms. Right now, that's the only thing that we know with certainty. Because, you know, as we mentioned, 25 years, that first case of two-way resistance, both of that was due to target site resistance. Well, our groups really haven't worked a lot in target site resistance in the last eight to 10 years We're now focusing on trying to understand this non-target site resistance mechanisms. And in most cases in water hemp, these plants, these populations have now evolved the ability to metabolize or break down these herbicides, in some instances, as efficiently and as rapidly as our crops can. And that's a little bit unnerving because we really right now don't understand what has led to this? You know, why are these populations demonstrating these patterns that they do? And if we really don't understand what has caused this pattern of metabolic resistance, we really don't know how to come up with a chemical solution for it. And as we've said before, and this bears to say again, to be able to think that we can solve a problem caused by using herbicides by simply using herbicides differently, that's not going to happen. Erin, you have mentioned a couple of times some of the research that has been done on pigweed. Can you speak to some of the current research that you're aware of? Yeah, a lot of folks have, have really, you know, taken up the challenge to try to understand and better, you know, learn 
what is occurring with this with these various instances of metabolic resistance. A colleague of mine, Dr. Trannell, he's probably and you know, done as much as anyone trying to look at, you know, can we identify what genes are even responsible for this enhanced metabolism of these herbicides? Right now, we don't know. We struggle with the question, why do we find populations of water hemp that are resistant to herbicides that population had never been exposed to before? And that's very real. That happens with frequency. So our hope is that once we can identify the genes that are responsible in an ideal world, that would be the same genes in all populations. There's no biological law that says that's going to happen. But once we understand what genes are involved, the next step that really would get us toward a lot of progress is to try to determine, okay, why are these genes now behaving differently than the wild type genes? And that really is what our focus is right now to try to get the genes and then understand why they behave the way that they do. And I'll give you an example of why this is so important. Several years ago, I was traveling to one of our national scientific meetings. I believe it was in New Orleans. And at the airport, when I was picking up my luggage, I happened to run into one of our former graduate students who at the time was working for a company that still had a very active herbicide discovery program. And so we stood there, chatted for a while, and we decided we'd share a cab to the hotel. And during that cab ride, our former student told me that that company had discovered a new mode of action, a new herbicide mode of action. It looked promising enough that they were advancing it through some of the early screens in the greenhouse. But then they said they screened it against some of these water hemp populations that we have here in the Midwest, and they didn't control it. And so that's a mode of action that probably is not going to be developed. So we emphasize that because I still run into folks with the mindset that, you know, once it gets so bad, somebody in the industry is going to bring out something new. That's probably there's some element of truth in that statement, but we haven't had a new mode of action in 30 years. And, you know, the likelihood of being able to be successful in controlling some of these populations, there's no guarantees that they're going to be sensitive by the time that these products come to the marketplace. You know, you're talking about a process between when a molecule is discovered and when it hits the market of somewhere between eight and 10 years. We are now talking about issues around metabolic resistance in water hemp today that we were not talking about 10 years ago. And so if you put yourself in the shoes of a person within a company that has a new active ingredient, you're now going to have to make a decision that's going to roughly be, I don't know, $300 million, $400 million, maybe up to half a billion dollars to developing this new herbicide that is going to be eight to 10 years away from your decision. How do you know it's going to remain effective eight to 10 years from now? So there's a lot of uncertainty around these things. And that's why, again, we try to emphasize that if our solution to these problems that were created by using herbicides is simply to wait and open up a new jug when one comes into the marketplace, I don't think it's going to be successful long term. We have to really combat these species at the weak point in their life cycle. And the weak point is the seed. And really the weakness of pigweed seed, especially of water hemp, is that it doesn't remain viable indefinitely in the soil seed bank. It's something where between seven and 10 years, most of that seed viability is going to be gone. So how do you use that as a solution? Well, again, anything that you can do as a producer, as a farmer, as a consultant, to ensure that any field that has a dioecious pigweed does not make seed for maybe three, four consecutive years, you're going to start to see these populations. Literally, they're going to plummet because, again, that seed viability is not that long. What then becomes the issue for reducing seed viability, Aaron? 
getting people to do that is really where the resistance issues are even most keen is that, well, you know, we talked about the differences in competitive ability earlier about water hemp and Palmer. Palmer, you would be forced to do these things or you may not harvest a crop. Water hemp, it's not nearly as competitive with Palmer. So it's been much more challenging to try to convince folks, you know what? You got a 60 acre bean field, you got 250 water hemp plants across 60 acres at the end of the growing season, roughly half of which are going to be females. That's not going to slow down your harvest. That's not going to slug up your combine by any stretch. But what happens if some of those surviving females have seed that have evolved the next resistance mechanism? So that's, again, why we were trying to emphasize, and we really shifted the focus of our message many years ago away from, again, trying to make herbicide recommendations because we don't know what the best recommendations are. Again, to try to get people to think about, you know, reducing that seed load, that's really the key. That's where we need to strive and put our efforts. Aaron, you said pigweed is found in corn and soybeans. What other crop is it found in? Oh, we've seen it growing through cracks in concrete before. Really? Okay. So (laughs) anything. It's it's very doubtful. Yeah, I mean, it thrives in areas of annual disturbance. And again, it's an annual. So typically our most problematic weed species have a life cycle that is the same as our crops. With annual crops, corn, soybean, sorghum, most of the problems that we contend with are with annual weed species, whether it be pigweeds, lamb squatters, kosher, etc. They don't do well in perennial crops. Something like an alfalfa stand is not as good an environment for water hemp to grow in, for example, because why? Well, you're going to have multiple cuttings throughout the year because that's a perennial. You're not going to have annual disturbance of the soil, so you're not going to be mixing the seed bank and you're not going to be you know, mixing up the distribution of existing seeds in the seed bank. So really, you know, one strategy to think about would be to move a field that has a heavy infestation. If you have a market for the forage, you know, for example, that's a very good way to start reducing the seed bank numbers is, again, just really dramatically change the life cycle of what is being grown in those infested fields. Thank you to my guest here today, Aaron Hager, professor of weed science at the University of Illinois. This successful Farming Weeds podcast has been brought to you by Anthem and Authority brand herbicides from FMC. Visit ag.fmc.com. And for more agricultural news and information, be sure to log on to agriculture.com. I'm Lori Boyer for Successful Farming.